Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. And if you're here today without a Bible, we want everyone not only to hear the Word, but to be able to read it, see it with their own eyes. So just raise your hand, and there's somebody coming down the aisle with a Bible, and they'd love to get one uh, into your hands this morning. And so uh, just get their attention. If you're visiting with us today, we are studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and that means we hit anything and everything. And the famous passages and that everybody knows, and then the passages that are a little more obscure, but just as rich in their own way. And we'll look specifically in Mark chapter 11 at verses 12 through 14 and then verses 20 through 24. But I want to pick the context up uh, with the account of Jesus' triumphal entry in verse 1. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, And Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. And so they went on their way. They found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there, they said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and so they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went out, went before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day when they came out of Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And he came to it looking for fruit, but he found nothing but leaves, for it was not uh, yet the season for ripe figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, "Let let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And the disciples heard it. Verse 20. Now, in the morning, the following morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again this morning for what is always our joy and our privilege, and that is to be able to turn to your word. We thank you that it exists in the world for that purpose. And Lord, we don't want to turn to it alone in our own wisdom or our own ability to perceive and understand. We turn to it knowing that you are present in this room and very active and infinitely powerful. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us personal revelation for our own lives from this passage. For those that stand before you right now that have not yet trusted in Jesus As their Savior, we pray that you give them the revelation that they need today. For those of us who know you and walk with you, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice also. This time is yours, Lord. Use it for your glory and use it for our good, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our passage, we have something here that claims to represent God but doesn't. And it so displeases Jesus that he curses it, he condemns it, he dooms it to die. 
And the event of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree occurred immediately following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it is very important to understand the context to fully appreciate what he did in the uh, uh, cursing of the fig tree. Jesus on the Sunday, prior to his crucifixion, made that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, beautiful spring day in a beautiful part of the world. Riding on a donkey, he crests the Mount of Olives from the east side of Bethany, makes his way on that donkey down the Kidron Valley, and then up the Kidron Valley again into the city of Jerusalem. And along the way, we're told in each of the accounts, but especially in Matthew's account, that there was a huge multitude of people that lined the roads as he rode that donkey triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem, laying their robes on the road before him, cutting down palm branches and laying them on the road. And they're shouting, they're excited, they're praising God. And then spontaneously, unrehearsed, they begin to sing the messianic psalms from the Old Testament and ascribe these psalms to Jesus himself. And in doing so, they're declaring their recognition of Jesus being the long-awaited and long-promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And it's a scene of just pure, uh, spontaneous, holy joy. The people are so excited over what's happening. And what the triumphal entry was meant to communicate to the nation of Israel, from heaven's perspective, was that Jesus was and is indisputably the promised Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament as long ago as the ancient Garden of Eden. In Luke's Gospel, we're provided with a little fuller account of Jesus' triumphal entry and what Jesus did following his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. We're told in chapter 19, verse 41, you can see it on the screen. Now, as he, that is Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known even you especially, and then notice this, in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And then notice, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The first detail that we're told concerning Jesus is that for all of the joy, all of the excitement, all of the holy beauty of his triumphal entry, by the time he enters into the city of Jerusalem, there's something about the scene that breaks his heart. And it breaks his heart so deeply that he begins to weep. And the word that is used for his weeping in the original language is he begins to sob convulsively. It is a body-racking, a body-shaking kind of weeping that he is doing over the city of Jerusalem. You can picture it in your minds. And the reason for his weeping is given to us in verse 44 of Luke's gospel there, and that is, number one, that they did not know this your day, Jesus said, and number two, because they did not know the time of their visitation. Well... What does all of that mean? Someone might say, I want to know what made Jesus weep here. I want to know how this thing can be so joyous and so melancholy at the same time. What could break his heart in a scene like that? I I don't understand what's happening here. Well, here's what's going on. On the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus fulfilled one of the most remarkable prophecies given concerning the Messiah in all of the Old Testament, a prophecy that is recorded in Daniel chapter 9. 
where the angel Gabriel declared to Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 on the screen before you. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, or literally seven sevens in the Hebrew, and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, Gabriel, notice Gabriel's revelation concerning the coming of the Messiah, Messiah the Prince. He's saying to Daniel, essentially, one day there's going to be a decree given to restore and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which lay in ruins at the time of Daniel. And Gabriel further declared that from the day that that decree is given until the coming of the Messiah to Israel will be seven sevens plus sixty-two sevens. That is a total of sixty-nine sevens. They're talking about years when we're talking about sixty-nine sevens in the passage because and we don't have the time to go into it today, but the whole, the whole chapter is dealing with years in terms of, of the context. And so he says, from the time that the decree goes forth until Messiah uh, reveals himself as the Messiah will be 69 sevens. And if it is indeed years, that is a total of 483 years. Now, the prophecy was given at the time of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire did not measure the calendar year as being 365 days the way that we do. They measured it as being 360 days. So if you take the prophecy in its context, the 483 years, and you were to multiply at times the 380 days of the calendar year of the Babylonians, you come up with 173,880 days. And so the Lord is revealing to Daniel that from the day that the decree is given, you could pull out a calendar or several of them, and begin to count 173,880 days from the time that that decree to rebuild Jerusalem and its wall is given. And on that 173,880th day, then the Messiah will be revealed to Israel. So the critical question becomes, where in the Old Testament did a king make a decree like that? And the decree was made... In Nehemiah chapter 2, in, in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, where a king by the name of Artaxerxes gave a decree to Nehemiah not only to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, but also its wall, its outer defense. And we're told there that the decree was given on the first day of Nisan, the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which we know historically was March 14, 445 B.C. And you add 173,880 days to that particular date, and you come to April 6, 32 A.D., the very day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. God had given the nation of Israel, indeed the world, but specifically the nation of Israel, the very day when the Messiah would reveal himself to be the Messiah to the entire nation. And the day was when Jesus made that triumphal uh, entry. But overall, though they had been given that day, they were completely ignorant uh, of the time of their visitation. The common people continued to hear Jesus gladly. They continued to worship Him. They continued to... They were the ones that were singing these uh, psalms to Him. And so He remains very, very popular among the common people. But in terms of religious Jerusalem as a whole, their response to Jesus' triumphal entry was uh, indifference. It was a collective yawn. The response of the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jews to Jesus' triumphal entry, I mean, they met this fulfillment of prophecy with open rejection of him. They cried out and they demanded that he would silence his uh, disciples and followers from ascribing these messianic psalms to him. And Jesus said, if 
I silence them, then the stones will cry out those psalms because this is the fulfillment of, of Scripture. And so they took and they rejected what was going on. They were jealous of the popularity of Jesus. And not only that, they were more determined than ever to destroy him. Imagine now being the religious leaders of Israel, claiming to represent the God of the Bible, the God of, that created the heavens and the earth, to represent Jehovah, to represent Yahweh, to claim to represent this God before all of the people, while at the same time you're planning to kill His Scripture-confirmed Messiah, His very Son. And yet that is exactly what they were doing, and the religious system that these religious leaders had falsely fashioned out of the Old Testament Scriptures were an affront to God. And so here they are, having rejected heaven's Messiah, having rejected heaven's Savior, having rejected the Son of God, and plotting His destruction, and yet their religious system is humming right along. There is such a disconnect between this religious system and what it is about and what heaven is about, and what God is about, and what Jesus is about, that you couldn't put a, a wider gulf between the two of them. They're about two entirely different things. And yet to save their lives, and out of their own willful ignorance, the leaders of this religious system and the religious system that they had fashioned didn't see anything wrong with what was going on? That here is the rejection of the Messiah on our part. We are plotting his death. And yet in the midst of this, our religious system is completely untouched and continues to thrive. That's how, again, disconnected the two things were. What they were doing and what God was doing. Now Jesus, the details of it, all that sets the stage for the cursing of the fig tree. And he cursed the fig tree, we're told on verse 12, the day after his triumphal entry. He made the triumphal entry on Sunday, so he curses the fig tree on a Monday. And so early in the morning, Jesus is making his way from the city of Bethany, which is about a stone's throw away uh, from the city of Jerusalem on the east side. Jesus would not spend a night except the final night in the city of Jerusalem uh, of, before the cross. Each night he would make his way back to the city of Bethany where he had friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where he and the disciples would stay. So they get up early in the morning. The next morning they begin to make their way to the city uh, of Jerusalem. They're hungry, so apparently Martha didn't get the flapjacks uh, done in time. But they're hungry. He approaches a fig tree. He's hoping to find figs to eat, and he finds it barren of of figs. It's all leaves and, and no figs. It wasn't the season for figs that were told. And so it's, this is all happening in the spring. For those of you who like figs or you have a fig tree in your yard, um, figs get ripe late in the summer. So, you, so um, you know, then there's purple and you just open them up and they look really good. I do like fig newtons, though. So if you like figs, you can have my figs at the next potluck. They're serving figs or something like that. But you could, because of that Mediterranean climate there, you, even to approach a fig tree at that time of the year in the spring, there would have been the, the beginning of the buds of, of figs. It wouldn't be ripe until later in the year. But even in that early season, they were edible. You, you could eat them. And so Jesus comes and, and he doesn't find uh, these, these figs ready to be eaten. And then in the presence, verse 14 of the disciples, he cursed the fig tree, declaring, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And presumably they continued on their way into the city of Jerusalem and passing by the same way the following morning, Peter drew Jesus' attention to the fulfillment of his curse and says, look at the fig tree, it's already withered up. 
You'd think if Jesus cursed it the day before, that if it ran its normal course of things, spring weather, it would take, you know, at least days and maybe a week or two before it would begin to wilt and dry up and ultimately be in a withered condition. But this is a miraculous thing that Jesus has done. And so overnight, it has completely dried up and withered away. Now, the meaning of the miracle, and it is a miracle that has a meaning, it has a message with it, Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol of the nation of Israel. It, the prophets Isaiah, Joel, Hosea, Micah, they all spoke of Israel as being a fig tree. And so all leaves and no fruit was a perfect picture of the spiritual condition of Israel in Jesus' day, under the influence of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Everything looked good on the outside. Everything looked in that religious system like surely this is something that really pleases God, but there was no fruit for God at all in it. And so like the fig tree, Israel gave this great outward appearance of spiritual life, but when God looked at it closely... There was no fruit. And so just as that physical fig tree had everything that was needed to be fruitful. I mean, Mediterranean climate, rich soil in the land of Israel, sunlight, enough nutrients for it to bring forth leaves. It had everything that it needed to be fruitful in the same way the nation of Israel had everything it needed in order to be spiritually fruitful. Everything that it needed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Everything necessary for the entire nation to rise up and make him their king. Not at the second coming, but at the first coming 2,000 years ago. Jesus shouldn't have run into any unbelief in Israel least of all among the religious community in Israel. But when he came, he ran into, in terms of the nation and in terms of what the nation had become spiritually, a system that generally rejected him and then plotted his death in order to protect the future of their religious system. Something is very wrong with any religious system that requires the minimizing or the rejection, or the death of Jesus in order to prosper. The message of the miracle. Jesus strongly rejects any religious system that claims to represent Him, or to represent God the Father, that produces nothing but leaves in people. Does not produce fruit, and, and, and spiritual life in a person. And what Jesus is demonstrating here is that any system that rises up and claims to represent the God of the Bible that produces no fruit or bad fruit, that that system is cursed by God, that is, it's doomed to die. And what Jesus does in cursing the fruit tree is basically he's saying, I'm not going to let you fool any more people. You give the appearance of life, you have all of the leaves, and so every single day people are going to be coming up to you looking for fruit, and they're not going to find any fruit. So he said, what he's saying to the tree is what he was saying to the religious system of Israel. I'm going to out you. I'm going to expose you as not being connected to God and not being one that properly represents God, so that people don't waste a day of their life invested in your system. I think that we need to ask ourselves, how in the world did Judaism at that time, how did they get to this kind of a place? How did they get to a place, given their heritage, given the resources that they had, all these things, how did they end up with a, a religion of all leaves but no fruit? And the reason we want to know how they got there is so that we don't go there ourselves. I don't look at the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
is people that are very different from myself in terms of just pure DNA and descendants of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. We're all the same. But they began to make some decisions. They began to take them on a course to produce a religious system that's completely disconnected from God, while in their minds they think they are absolutely the representatives of God in all of the world. So what are some of the reasons for this spiritually fruitless condition of Judaism and of such religious systems even today? I think as we study the life of Jesus up to this point and his interaction with these religious leaders, uh, a number of things come together. First of all, this kind of a religious system emphasizes and puts the focus of people on their, their religious system rather than upon God and them developing their own personal relationship with God. It would be like you coming to Calvary Chapel of Modesto every week and for me spending my block of time in this service talking to you all the whole time about Calvary Chapel of Modesto and the great things about Calvary Chapel of Modesto, what makes us different from everybody else, and then beginning to work into your life to try and manipulate you so you begin to develop a dependence upon Calvary Chapel of of Modesto. And so, so your spiritual life is not something that's happening just independently between you and God, but now we're building a dependence upon us as a church or as a, a, a religious institution rather than just pointing people to God and us being here to help you grow in your own relationship with God in any way that we could help you to grow. These kind of religious systems develop man-made traditions which then compete for the attention of God's people, attention that should, that should always be given to God. It isn't long in these kind of religious systems before they begin to develop all kinds of man-made traditions that in an attempt to control people or to keep people uh, busy or to keep people even from recognizing the fact that, hey, I've been in this thing for five years and I'm still not connected with God. Well, one of the things that you can do to keep that light from going on in people's lives is give them all manner of mindless and vain, unbiblical religious activity. And so that's exactly what they did. They devised all kinds of traditions for, that were man-made for people to keep. And typically, this kind of a religious system will devise so many man-made traditions that a person will spend all of their waking hours consumed with keeping those man-made traditions and have no time left over for a relationship with God or even the time to consider that I am missing out on something in life. I'm as empty as I've ever been. And so all the attention goes in to the outward appearances rather than the condition uh, of the heart. It's all about the leaves rather than the fruit. Jesus earlier in his ministry when he spoke to uh, these same religious leaders in Mark chapter 7, he spoke to them and he said, Well did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Why? In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. He said to them when he had entered a house, when he, in the same context in Mark chapter 7, he said, there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things that come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. Number three, this kind of a religious system emphasizes the keeping of those man-made traditions to the neglect of 
teaching and learning the whole counsel of God. Why was the entire nation virtually, especially its religious community, completely ignorant of Daniel's prophecy? Except they were so busy keeping all of these man-made traditions and teachings that they had no time to learn the Bible in the way that God intended. Even the simple of us, of us as saints would, would know the Bible. And so they didn't, they didn't know the Scriptures because they're in a religious system that doesn't emphasize the Scriptures. It emphasizes the man-made activities of religious people. Jesus over and over again spoke to the religious leaders when they tried to publicly trap him. And they'd ask him this question or that kind of question. We'll get to one of them in just the next week or two. And Jesus would respond by saying, Have you never read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? And entire sections of the Bible that they knew nothing about hadn't even read it, much less learned it, and then claiming to be the great knowers of the Bible and uh, representers of God in the world. Number four, very often these kind of systems will ultimately make the keeping of their man-made traditions more important in the minds of God's people than the obeying of God's word. And you see that happen. You, you go to Israel today. It's not true of all Jews. That's a qualifying statement. People do not take notice of qualifying statements. I'm not talking about all Jews. But the overwhelming majority of Jewish people elevate the traditions of the fathers, the rabbis, and the teachings and interpretations of the rabbis over the law and the prophet, the prophets, the Old Testament themselves. They test God's word by the teachings of man rather than the other way around. And they're not the only ones in the world that do that. I think about Mormonism is an example for that. Here you've got the Bible, but it's not the only book that they claim an allegiance to. They have the Book of Mormon. They have the Pearl of Great Price. They have Doctrines and, Doctrines and Covenants, three other books. And what they do is they test and interpret the Bible by these other three books rather than the other way around. You never ever, when you're dealing with God and with His Word, you always test subsequent revelation by prior revelation because God can't lie. You never test prior revelation by subsequent revelation. It's completely illogical, let alone ungodly and unbiblical. But the Mormons aren't the only ones in the world that elevate all of these other books, build people, their whole religious life in a dependence upon these books, the teaching of the founder of the denomination or the non-denomination or the religious institution uh, or, the, or the religion and, and all to the neglect of the knowledge of the Word of God. Very often, number five, there's some, whenever there's a, some demand or teaching of the Word of God that they don't care for. They simply come up with an interpretation of God's Word that attempts to explain away God's clear intent for the passage. Classic example of it that Jesus brought up to these same religious leaders himself was the whole teaching of Korban that they developed. The Law of Moses taught that Children were to honor their fathers and their mothers. And in those days, they didn't have retirement plans like we have today, or they don't have social security or these different kinds of things. Your children were your social security. It might be good to go back to that, because parents might give greater attention to how they raise their kids when they know my end-of-life decisions or my latter years are going to be dominated by these kids. And so you were to honor your father and your mother, which meant that you were going to take care of them in their later years when they had need. 
when they needed to be fed and clothed and, and taken care of in the same way that they did with us when we were young. Well, you know, that can get expensive, I guess. So some amount of religious Jews went to the religious leaders. There had to be a critical mass to develop the law of Korban. And they said, this is a drain on our finances. But we can't see a way to get around the clear teaching of the law of Moses on our responsibility to take care of them. Can you come up with something? And here's what they came up with, the religious leaders. They said, listen, the law of Moses is what it is. But here's how we can get around it. Go into the temple and declare that everything you own belongs to God. And then when your parents come asking if they could have a new robe for Christmas or they could, you know, have something to eat or some kind of assistance or to live in a room in your house or something, you're then free to say, listen, I'd love to help you if I had any money or resources. I don't. I gave it all to God. And they did this whole thing to circumvent the teaching of the Word of God and the clear intent of the Word of God. Number six, these kind of religious systems typically end up demanding a loyalty of people that ought to belong only to God. Where people begin to think more about the religious institution or the leaders of that institution or people that are part of that institution in their decision-making, then they feel they have the freedom to even listen to God and to obey God. And their thinking is cluttered. And God's ability to lead His people is greatly hindered. And so they, they, everything kind of gets mixed up in, in that that kind of a, of a way when people ought to be free to listen to God and do what they believe God to be telling them to do, which means to come and go from a religious institution or a church. People come and go from here all the time. Some say goodbye. Most don't say goodbye. But I remember, and, and they're free to do it. I never, if you ever are leaving, and you, you don't have to do it because it, God probably spares me the... You know, I probably don't need to know everybody that's leaving on a weekly basis. I'd probably quit under the weight of it. But, but, they, but if a person does ever say goodbye to me, hey, we feel this has been a, a good season in our life in this place, but we feel like God is directing us over here, always with my blessing. You know, if, they're, if they're going someplace, the Bible's being taught and that kind of thing, I'm thrilled for it. I have no interest in taking the place of the Holy Spirit in anybody's life. I remember one time years ago when we were downtown and uh, the church had grown to like 150 or 200 people and we were having a work day and all. And there was a guy in the church, his name was Dan. His family had been in the church from the very beginning. And he came up to me, caught me kind of privately, and he said, Pastor, he said, we're going we're gonna to be leaving the church. He said, we're, we're made for small churches. And, and what he was talking about was a church of like 50 or less, the dynamic of that kind of a church. I said, Dan, God bless you. Hope you, they're as blessed by you and your family as, as we've been by you. And there has to be that freedom for people to hear God without thinking complicatedly about what everybody else, even God's people, are, are going to think uh, about it. What people do between them and God, that's the business between uh, them and God. Number seven, there's only 40, so just relax. <laughs> Number seven, these kind of religious systems also tend to use fear and intimidation to hold on to power, to keep people in line. And, uh, and one of the worst ways they do it is they'll often hold a person's salvation over their head. That you're only saved in this religious institution and, and, uh, and if you leave this church then, and go to any other church, then, then you've lost salvation. And so people get, they get afraid. People get afraid in some religious systems to even profess that they've put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. 
We were looking last week in John chapter 12, where there was so much fear from the Pharisees and and the religious leaders that they were exerting upon the people who were wanting to put their faith in the Lord, that there were even Pharisees who were closet Christians, closet believers in Jesus as their Savior, but they wouldn't say it publicly lest uh, the, for the, the repercussions that, that they would end up having come their way as a result of publicly making it known that they were now followers of, of Jesus. Then number eight and finally, as a, a nation, Israel had largely turned over their whole spiritual responsibilities to the religious leaders of, of their day. These kind of religious leaders and these kind of religious people, they wouldn't get any traction. They wouldn't be able to dominate entire nations, let alone entire sections of the world, if, they did, if there weren't willing accomplices among the common people. It's not, just the, it's not just the leaders that were to blame here. It was the common people were to blame also. And the same kind of attitude can exist in the world today where people will say about the religious system that they're in, I just do what the priests say and they do everything else for me and because they do it, I know I'm okay with, with God. And they allow a priesthood they allow a religious system to carry on their, try to carry on their personal relationship with God for them. And, and yet it's impossible for that to, to occur. And so they just leave it to the experts. They leave it to the religious leaders. They'd rather have a relationship with a religious system than a personal relationship with God. And so the religious system's happy to have it because the money keeps flowing in and the people keep showing up and the power is all of there and so they tend to like that kind of stuff and they tend to exploit that kind of tendency in people to sometimes want somebody else to live their relationship with God for them rather than the system just saying listen I'm not interested in that place in your life you there's a God you got your own who you are And there's a personal relationship between you and God that's just waiting for you. But you're going to have to be the one that finds it. I've got mine. I'm working on that. But you've got to do this for yourself between you and God. Jesus doesn't like religious systems that make themselves go-betweens between him and people. In fact, the Bible says he hates it. When Jesus wrote his letter to the church at Ephesus in in the book of Revelation chapter 2, he said, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I read that as a brand new Christian. Jesus hates? What does he hate? I want to make sure that I am not a part of whatever these Nicolaitans are about. And the word Nicolaitan... It, it means over, laetin, laos, laity. It means clergy over the laity. It's a religious system where religious leaders put themselves in a place as a mediator between people and God. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. Calvary Chapel Modesto. <laughs> All right, you're still with me. Okay. There's one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Now let me close very quickly with this in verses 22 to 24. And that is, here is Jesus' solution to this kind of fruitlessness. And he begins, as he tells us how to achieve a spiritually fruitful life, in verse 22 he says, number one, have faith in God. You, personally, Have faith in God. And how do I do that? It all begins with a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. By coming to a place in my life where I say to God, God, I believe your assessment of me that I'm a sinner. And I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. 
But I also believe what your son said, and that is that you loved me in the world so much that you sent him into the world that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so this morning I want to put my faith in Jesus' death upon the cross for the forgiveness of my sin. I believe he was buried and he rose again on the third day. I believe that is the Savior and the salvation that pleases you. I put my faith in your Savior and I desire to begin a personal relationship with you today. I want to put my faith in God, not in a religious institution or religious men. I want to have what you intend to have between yourself and individual people. And when a person does that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again by the Holy Spirit and begin a personal relationship with God today. And then having begun that personal relationship with Him, it's important to begin to express my faith by learning God's Word, studying God's Word, knowing what His promises are toward me, putting my faith in His promises so that when I look at any circumstance in my life and I see the promise of God says one thing and yet on the path that I'm on there is a mountain that needs to be cast into the sea, I can look at it with faith and be able to say no circumstance in life, no mountain in life will disprove God's promises. That will be yea and amen. It will have the final say in my life and in my situation. And then I give God the time that He needs, and that mountain, if need be to be cast into the sea, will be cast into the sea. And then I develop my relationship with Him by praying to God in faith, praying to God Himself, not through a system or through another mediator, praying to the Father through the Son in a complete confidence in His promises. And prayer is an expression of our faith and talking things over with the Lord about the promises. God, here is the promise I see in your word. Here is my circumstance. I lift this up to you. I put my faith in you. And when a person will simply come to know Christ and have God come into their heart, and begin to know the Word of God, and then to obey it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and begin a life of prayer, all of a sudden what explodes in that person's life is the greatest life a person can live. It's supernatural. It, it is, is wonderful, it's powerful, it's indescribable. I mean, no religion in the world or all of them put together can even hope to, to try and produce in us what these simple things will produce in our lives. Because God is behind those things. I think one of the reasons that we're susceptible to these kind of religious institutions and systems is somehow we think that a relationship with God must be terribly, terribly uh, complex. And it's not. God, Jesus, forever working to keep in the minds of people that what God has called us to is very simple. A personal relationship with Him. And then a wonderful life of communion with Him is we just obey Him and talk with Him personally throughout the days of our pilgrimage. Someone might be tempted to think, Damien, are you sure you haven't made a mountain out of a molehill this morning? And I don't think so. Because everywhere this word and this gospel is preached all around the world today, the overwhelming majority of people in this world will not have to leave sex, drugs, and rock and roll to be born again.
and enter this relationship with God. They will need to leave a religious system and institution. And so the strength of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree and the strength of the message, are you born again? Are you born again? Do you have a personal relationship with God? Do you have the confidence that if you were to die, you would go into heaven? Do you have this kind of relationship with God? It doesn't matter how religious our background is. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Am I born again? That's all I care about. I'm a zealot. You can go to a lot of other places, and they're wonderful places, who will say things a lot more nicely than I'll say them. But I just figure I got some of you one time, got you one Sunday, and I'm a very direct person, not about the 49ers, not about politics necessarily or about hobbies or this, but you get me on the subject of the Bible. You get me on the subject of the Word of God. You get me on the subject of everlasting life that goes on forever and ever and ever in some place. And I don't have the time for lack of clarity. It's a time to be clear and to understand the strength of what Jesus is saying. He wants a personal relationship with you. That's where it's all found. And he'll give that to you this morning. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you, answer your questions, and give you a Bible and give you some literature to help you get started in your personal relationship with the Lord. If you need prayer for anything, These same men and women would love to pray with you and pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now.